Hi, I'm Tom Clark from Global Public Affairs. Welcome to another edition of The Take. We are now on episode four of our special edition of that wild ride called the U.S. presidential elections happening somewhere south of where all of us live, or most of us live anyway. For this episode, I'm bringing in a friend. I'll admit that up front. But he's somebody who really knows something about presidential politics, and he actually happens to know Joe Biden personally. Bruce Heyman, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, whose knowledge of Canada and Canada-U.S. relations goes back to his days, in fact, as a partner at Goldman Sachs, where his territory included, I think, most of Canada. We'll find out in a second. Uh, but since leaving his diplomatic post, uh, Bruce has remained fully engaged in the Canada-U.S. file. And as a lifelong Democrat, is also fully engaged in the Biden campaign, specifically right now, getting the expat Americans to vote sometime between now and November 3rd. Bruce Heyman. Thanks for being here. Good to be with you, my friend. So how are you feeling? I think the word I am using or the two words I'm using is are anxiously optimistic. And oh. uh, I am anxious, uh, clearly nervous, uh, both because of the events that happened around 2016. Um, but I'm also very anxious and nervous about the path forward for our country. And uh, but I'm optimistic because of the good work that we've all done on this campaign and engaging voters. And the early signs are that a lot of people are taking this race very seriously and they're getting out to vote. Well, I think in absolutely historically high numbers in terms of the uh, the pre-voting, it's it's in the tens of millions right now, which is, I think, uh, highly unusual, isn't it? Sure. It is. It is very unusual. I think this morning we were probably at 30 million. And so but you don't know whether you're cannibalizing hmm. the November 3rd vote or you're actually expanding the vote. Uh, every indication that I'm seeing is that there's a decent expansion of the vote and for Joe Biden, a decent expansion of his map of a potential possibilities of a really good outcome for him. Um, and so, and, and given the pandemic, which we're clearly going through an increase of, of proportions that we haven't seen in several months and looks like it's continuing on that path, that we don't know what the world's going to look like in terms of the pandemic on November 3rd, which is just a couple of weeks away, that, you know, it's good to get your votes in when you can and get them in early in any way that you're most comfortable. So here's here's what I'm seeing uh, south of the border. And when I'm talking to uh, friends down in, in Washington, where, you know, I lived for a while, uh, we're seeing that the national polls still have Biden with anywhere from a nine to 12 point lead, depending on which poll you're looking at. But when you take it down to the state level and, you know, I guess we as Canadians always need reminding that this is not a national election in the United States. This is a state by state vote. Uh, and then they apportion people from the Electoral College to do the sort of ceremonial vote, if you want. But nevertheless, you need 270 Electoral College votes in order to win the presidency. So when you take a look at those state polls, there's no question that the race looks tighter at a state level than it does on a national level. But if you're anxious, I just want to explore this a bit. Uh, 
Tell me how Donald Trump at this point wins the presidential. So uh, first and foremost, let's just look at this. And I, you're absolutely right in terms of the national versus state. But if you look at the total numbers that he has been behind all year long in this uh, polling popularity between Joe Biden and himself. And a large reason for that is he continues to bleed out and lose Republicans who are supporting him and moving over and did support him in 16 and moving over to supporting Joe. You've lost a number of women in suburban areas um, that were supportive of, you know, kind of moderate Republican um, philosophy and supported him last time thinking he would be more like that. He's losing a larger number of the elderly and the elderly because of the pandemic uh, and because of the, I, I think, abuse of the mail system, which has impacted them on their drugs, prescriptions, checks, all of that. He's losing them in the military, which, you know, I'm part of the national security leaders for Biden, in which, you know, well over 700 of us admirals, generals, you know, and former ambassadors, national security leaders in, in um, our various intelligence agencies all came together, Republicans, Democrats and independents. But he's lost and he's losing uh, some of the military at the margin. And all of that at the margin is 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 a gap. You know, these elections are always close in the U.S. Mm -hmm. because people vote largely by party, especially the Republican Party. So what he needs to do in the next two weeks is bring his party back home and That's consolidate. And it's going to be really tough, especially since he continues to go for his team, go off message every day. And what he needed to do is kind of bring that together. Um, the second thing is that, and he's working hard at doing, which you know we're trying to combat as best possible, he's trying to delegitimize the voting process in many yeah. places. And you know, if he continues to push that, how will that impact people's participation in mail-in vote, et cetera? Bruce, were you, um, and then, sorry to yeah, interrupt here, but yeah. just on that point, were you mollified at all when in that uh, town hall thing, what, whatever that thing was with Donald Trump, where he said that he would uh, do a peaceful transfer of power? Because uh, there had always been the question about would he even leave the White House if he lost? I don't believe a single word he says. I don't believe anything he says. He makes it up as he goes. He changes his mind. He is so off the rails and so dangerous right now. Um, I just want to win November 3rd and get to January 20th as quickly as possible uh, to remove any risk that we have um, in, in what he does every day. I mean, I, yes. he, he, you know, what he says on Monday, he can change his mind by Monday night or Tuesday. I mean, you you and I know this. He lauded and used an advertisement for his campaign, lauding Dr. Fauci. Then he has moved to kind of dismissing Dr. Fauci. Now he's attacking Dr. Fauci. And finally, he's basically saying that what Biden would do would be listen to Dr. Fauci. And I mean, this all happened this week. And so 
you know, do I feel more comfortable when he says something that is half reasonable? Um, sure. But I also know that I can't rely on that for very long. You know, there's nothing like picking a fight with your top health person in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it really scratches the imagination. But Especially a guy who has 70 plus percent approval by the American people that is lauded by Republicans and Democrats alike who served in every type of administration who had only one focus his entire life is taking care of the health and welfare of the American people. And the guy is just going off the rails attacking him. Listen, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time or more time, you know, looking at the scenario of a Trump victory. But because it's a binary choice in the United States, let's just have one last look at a renewed Trump administration. What happens to America if Trump wins again? It's a very scary thing because, you know, he has demonstrated he doesn't abide by rules and standards. And a large part of the way we've operated, regardless of one's political philosophy or, you know, wh where you are in various issues, we can get upset that Republicans are for or against something you're on the other side of. But you always believed that there was a structure that existed and you respected the rule of law and you respected agreements and your word was your bond as a country internationally. And where we are is a demonstration that he has, you know, acquiesced to, you know, the far reaches of this craziness. Um, he has not dismissed white supremacy. Uh, uh, he has used misogyny and racism. He has put cities against rural areas and pitted them against each other. He doesn't believe the pandemic is is real, even though he caught the virus himself. And he continues to have these rallies that put people at risk. We have 220,000 people that are dead. He has um, taken on Bill Barr as his virtual personal attorney, including calling on him to indict his opponent um, you know, two weeks before an election, um, the risks are profound. Um, uh, and, you know, make no mistake about it. You know, he's learned how to operate with some of the tools of government that were there for good, that he has now turned in for evil. You know, look, he went to Canada and started claiming on basis of national security that he's going to tax your steel and aluminum. Mm. Well, that's ridiculous. We all know. But you, I think everybody's tried to take that literally. Oh, what? how are we a threat to national security? You're not. He just weaponized that tool. Mm -hmm. And he used that tool as a weapon. And so twice, what is it going to be like? Yeah. yeah, twice. But what is it going to be like? It's going to be really bad for democracy. It, this, this, this wonderful experiment that our forefathers put forth in our country um, that has, you know, withstood a, a lot of body blows this this would be this would be right up there as the most significant body blow to our democracy and you know i hope i hope mm. that we don't have to face that and i hope if we do face it we can survive it let's let's move a little bit beyond the american borders here because you've seen those polls bruce from around the world where they've said you know list your trust in america vis-a-vis -vis other countries and america has slipped uh dramatically is an understatement uh, in terms of it, the impression of America 
throughout Europe, even in Canada, you know, that, you know, your closest ally, I think, you know, the polls up here show that 85% uh, are, are, you know, completely opposed to Donald Trump and everything that he stands for. Uh, having said that, though, and let's just deal with Canada for a, sec a second, because this is a, an area that you know a lot about. Um, I think historically it's safe to say that uh, our hearts, the Canadian heart has always been with the Democrats, but our wallets have always been with the Republicans because Democrats have tended to be more protectionist. They've tended to, uh, you know, be, be a little bit harder on the trade front. Presuming a not only a Biden victory, because frankly, if you look at the polls, and I know you say you're you're anxiously optimistic, but you know, another reading of those polls is this is going to be a huge victory for the presidency. You're going to flip the Senate back to the Democrats and you're going to enlarge your take of the House of Representatives as well. So if you have this huge Democratic majority uh, controlling all three houses um, of the political spectrum, what happens to Canada, especially when part of the Democratic rally cry has been a very strong buy America, America first, uh, as we come out of this pandemic. Because as you know, in Canada, we're going, well, hang on, we're the guys that sell you a lot of stuff. The U.S. has no more important ally, friend, partner than Canada, period, full stop. Joe Biden, I have traveled with to Vancouver. I was, he swore me in. I have been with him through various meetings in the States. I've been with him in Ottawa and a celebration of the friendship and partnership in even the post-election period of Donald Trump. I know Senator Kamala Harris. I know that she has spent a fair bit of her growing up period in Montreal. You're going to have two people who know and understand and appreciate the relationship with Canada. The largest and most important issue facing the Canada-U.S. relationship today is the fact that our border, 5,525 miles of it, and um, something that has been peaceful and operating effectively, even in the post-9-11 era, when we ended up putting on additional controls and, and constraints on our border, that our border operated with 400,000 people going across our shared border on a daily basis while I was ambassador, about 120 plus or minus border crossings, that Canadians live 80% within 150 kilometers of the U.S. border, that we do things together, we're family, and the reopening of that border and making it available for non-essential travel is critical to the U.S.-Canada relationship. And with Donald Trump and the way he's behaving on this pandemic, the ability to open that border is pushed out to the, you know, to the way distant future. And I think with with Joe Biden, with a democratically controlled Senate and, and House, we can begin implementing those policies and that will give the confidence that our border can reopen again. The second is that relationships are based on trust, that when you reach an agreement, and you have an agreement and you shake hands on an agreement, even if you've disagreed across the table, you trust and value the, the, the agreement itself. And 
I can tell you, even if we have differences in trade, that I cannot possibly imagine that a Joe Biden would slap on aluminum tariffs six weeks after the implementation of a new NAFTA agreement. And he and Donald Trump did that for purely political purposes, because they knew that there were just a couple of months that existed during the pandemic where the numbers were askew and they ran with it. You don't do that to your friend. There will be no threat about troops at a border. There will be working together to solve the geopolitical problems that we face. Number one, the pandemic. Number two, we clearly have a problem in climate and in the environment. You can expect a Biden administration to work very closely with the Trudeau government on climate and environment. And just the fact that we have the Great Lakes, which is more than 20% of the world's fresh water, where 40 million of us on both sides of the border uses our drinking water, you want to make sure that that's safe and protected. And you, you can be sure that that. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Bruce, but you did mention the environment. And I know that uh, some people out West are bracing themselves probably within the first week of a Biden administration taking over. Uh, they're bracing themselves for the end of the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, are they justified in, in thinking that that's going to happen? I would think so, yes. And, and, and soon, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm asking for is sort of some insight for those people who are concerned about that sort of thing. Uh, but I don't imagine that this would be something that uh, pre uh, President Biden would waste a lot of time on before doing something. Uh, am I right on that? I think his first priority is the pandemic, as we've talked about. Yeah. First, second, third. The, the next priority, obviously, is the tens of millions of people who are on checks uh, to get by. And those checks were cut off by the Republican Senate and the president. And we we're still trying to negotiate that out as we're having this conversation to see if there's going to be another round of stimulus for people just as we're going through another wave of this pandemic. And I think we're going to have to have to, uh, you know, work on getting us through economically. Uh, the third priority, I think, is going to be climate and the environment. And it's going to be about putting people back to work with new jobs and and developing standards for us. Um, and I think that you know, that we'll be working very carefully with Canada on. Look, we're still using fossil fuels and we still, Canada is our largest supplier of imported oil that we get from anywhere in the world. And, you know, I don't envision that changing on day one or any near term. The question is, how much do you expand that platform relative to other platforms? And the cost of these alternatives have fallen so significantly, even in the last four years, that the competitive nature of other sources that are cleaner um, are there in the marketplace. And so I think people are going to continue to evolve. And we're looking at the automobile industry, which is very profoundly said they're going very electric here. And that's even during this Trump administration. You just imagine when these mileage standards are, you know, you know, stuck to and held on to and emission standards by a Biden administration, how quickly that will evolve. So I think our consumption of fossil fuels over time is just going to go down uh, relative to, you know, where we are today. And, that's and certainly, I, think, yeah, I but, think I think that, you know, look, that's just got to be a reality of uh, of what, you know, 
the oil producers within the United States and those which we buy oil from elsewhere, that's just a reality of, of where we are. And, and he promised, yeah. remember, he promised that he was going to put all these coal miners back to work. Nobody's opening new coal mines or building new coal-fired electric plants today. Yeah, and or, so, or investing you know, in them, which is the other thing, right? Correct, correct. And so, look, I, I think, you know, look, I'll, I'll just take the team at their word that they were asked about it. They came out and said it. And I would assume that that would be the position uh, that they're going to take. So, you know, as as frustrating as that may be, we're going to have places between Canada and the U.S. where we'll have differences and we'll have to work through those. But we're going to work through those as friends, allies, neighbors with trust and respect. It does not mean that the U.S. or Canada is going to agree to everything the other party wants all the time. And we're going to have to stand for, you know, the interests, you know, of our of our individual governments. But we have to work through them. And uh, that's very different than the way we're operating right now. Well, and I would think one of the key differences would be is that when you do have that disagreement between two governments, two countries, Really, what matters in that situation is how do you resolve it? If you've got good personal or institutional relationships between the two countries, it's, you know, you're, you're, nobody's ever going to be happy with the outcome, but at least there's a method of doing it. It seems that right now, at least from the Canadian side, it is almost impossible for Canada to talk to the Trump administration over any of these things. We have to resort really to sort of using a bullhorn uh, in the media to try and get uh, Trump's attention. Uh, Bruce, in the, in the minute or so that we've got left, I'm just wondering if you could give uh, an idea of, of what you would recommend that Canada do and those who deal with the United States, either commercially or personally, how should Canada prepare for a Biden administration? Um. Good question. What what I did when I was the sitting ambassador, what I did in the embassy, when you were going through your election, when we were working with the Harper government and it was uncertain what path we were going down, we literally in every department through the embassy, and then I did it also back in Washington, I asked every department of the U.S. government to prioritize their things that they would like to get done with Canada. And so we had everybody from commerce to homeland security to agriculture to you name every department. And every department had a priority list that was set up and we were prepared to go. So once the Trudeau government came in, that we were able to sit down with every minister and say, hey, let's work together on these things. And these were priorities to things that we wanted, not only on, from the U.S. perspective, but from the bilateral perspective. And what could we find areas that we could quickly agree to? And that resulted in a state dinner and President Obama coming in for his speech before Parliament and all of these things. And I think that, you know, if I would give any advice to Canada and the U.S., is to have all the various departments of our shared governments sit down independently and then come together and talk about what areas that we can work on to enhance the relationship right away. And that's what I would do. I would prepare for that in each of those departments and think through those. Um, but those are tactics. The strategy is at the very top end. 
is that personal relationship, which I know exists and will exist between the prime minister and the president and the deputy prime minister and, and the vice president and the leadership of, of, of the United States in a Biden administration, that is going to be most important for us in reigniting and renewing and rebuilding the trust that I think that was broken. Remember, your deputy prime minister even most recently said when talking about the aluminum tariffs and how to respond, she said, we're going to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. I would say in a Biden administration that we're not going to be in that position with our best friend, Canada, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. We're going to hope for the best and prepare for the best and work toward the best. And that's the place that we should be. And I'm confident that we'll be there. Maybe one of the things that uh, on the American side that might be worth gaming out a little bit. As you know, we haven't had an American ambassador here in Canada for a while. Uh, you know, maybe you and Vicky should come back. And, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd be welcome, Bruce. I honestly do. I think, uh, you know, the, the, I've been looking at the residents. It's still in good shape. Um, <laughs> well, look, we're, we're citizens now, and the role of citizen is just, you know, maybe more important than anything else. And we look forward to having that border reopen and sharing a couple of beers with our friends up north and debating on uh, Stanley Cup issues and those kinds of things and not not spend as much time on the political side. And I'm sure uh, a President Biden will select somebody who's really wonderful. And we look forward to supporting she or he in any way possible uh, in well, this relationship. You do realize, though, that there are no NHL issues because uh, next year, either the Leafs or the Canadians are going to win the Stanley Cup. And uh, that's really the end of that discussion. Uh, anyway, Bruce, uh, a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, as I said, I don't think that Canada's got a greater friend right now than Bruce and Vicki Heyman. And... Uh, we uh, listen, we appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to that cold beer. Thank you. Put it on ice. I'm getting ready. <laughs> okay. Well, that is this episode of The Take. Our guest has been Bruce Heyman, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada. Uh, we're going to be dropping another episode in the next few days. It's going to be with Ali Velshi of MSNBC. You may know him. He, he's a Canadian. Uh, he worked on Canadian television screens, now is very big in the United States, and is a part of Donald Trump's rallies, believe it or not, because Ali Velshi got shot, and Donald Trump is absolutely thrilled that he did. Uh, we're going to talk to Ali, who, by the way, is in fairly good shape. Uh, that is it for the take. Uh, we will see you on the next episode. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much for being with us. That is this edition of The Take. By the way, if you want to follow me online, my Twitter handle is at TomClarkGPA. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future editions. In the meantime, I'm Tom Clark. Thanks again for being here, and we will see you on the next edition of The Take.